This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash nomis, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for January 24th, 2014. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, we hear about the genome of a transmissible dog cancer, check in with the Opportunity Mission after 10 years on Mars, and David Grimm is here with the latest stories from our daily news site. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. AAAS, the Science Society, at www.aaas.org. As they divide, cancer cells accumulate mutations. Some of these mutations help the cancer to travel within the body, and some mutations actually help them make the leap to another body. I spoke with Elizabeth Murchison about what can be learned from the genome sequence of one such cancer found in dogs. This paper is about the genome of the canine transmissible venereal tumor. This is a cancer that first arose in a single dog that lived about 11,000 years ago and is continuing to survive by transmission of the cancer cells through the dog population worldwide. It's the oldest cancer that we know of in nature. So we're talking about a transmissible cancer. Can you describe how this is similar or different from other cancers and transmissible diseases? Well, most cancers that we know of arise when a single cell in the body acquires mutations which cause that cell to grow into a cancer. Sometimes the cancer cells spread within the patient's body, but they don't usually leave the patient's body and go into other individuals. That's why the canine transmissible venereal tumor, this dog cancer, is interesting because the cancer cells actually left the body of the dog that first gave rise to the cancer and were spread into other dogs, allowing the continued survival of this cancer. On the other hand, most infectious diseases that we know of are usually transmitted by agents such as viruses or bacteria, small pathogens which actually are a different species to the host. In this case, the pathogen is actually the cancer cells themselves, and they actually are derived from the same species of their own host. So this canine transmissible venereal tumor, as its name suggests, is a sexually transmitted disease. It spreads between dogs during sexual contact, and it leads to the appearance of tumors usually associated with the genitalia of both male and female dogs. So the disease that we see in dogs today is all from the same cell line. 
and essentially the same dog many, many years ago. How is its genome different from its dog's host's genomes? Exactly. So this dog venereal cancer that we see causing dog genital tumors in dogs all around the world today, actually all of those cancer cells are derived from the single dog that first gave rise to the cancer that probably lived about 11,000 years ago. So the cancer cells today still contain the genome of that original dog, but they've also acquired about 2 million mutations during their evolution as a cancer, which have made them actually quite different in some ways to the original dog that first gave rise to the cancer. And looking at those mutations, can you tell anything about how the cancer came about in the first place? Well, we searched for mutations in cancer genes that might have actually explained how the cancer was caused in the first place. And we found a number of interesting candidates. But one other thing that we found which was interesting was that about 40% of the mutations in this dog cancer seem to have actually been caused by exposure to UV light from the sun. Hmm. This is a signature of mutations that we normally see in human skin cancers, such as melanoma. It's interesting that this dog's genital cancer, which is normally contained inside the body of the dog, sometimes is exposed to UV light when it protrudes from the genital orifice and gets exposed to the sun. And then it's actually those same cells which are on the surface of the tumor which are exposed to the sun which are spread to new hosts by the transmission of cancer cells during sexual activity. Hmm. So what about the source of this cancer? Is the founder dog's identity still kind of bound up in the cell line? Yeah, that's something that I find quite fascinating to think that actually these cancer cells which are being carried by dogs around the world today, the genome of that cancer is still the genome of that original founder dog that gave rise to the cancer in the first place 11,000 years ago. And by looking at the cancer genome and the genetic variants present in that genome, and by comparing those variants with variants of the dog's genome today, which are known to confer certain traits in dogs, we were able to kind of create a little genetic identikit of the original dog that gave rise to the disease. So we were able to determine that the dog that gave rise to the disease probably had pointy ears, a pointy snout, probably had a kind of brownish-colored or black coat. Mm-hmm. So we were able to build up a picture of this dog, which probably looks possibly most like a husky or an Alaskan Malamute from today's breed. But yeah. interestingly, we also found that that original dog had what appears to be some level of inbreeding. So its parents were probably fairly closely related suggesting that that dog might have lived in quite an inbred population, which may in turn have been a factor in why that dog and its population developed a transmissible cancer in the first place. Wow. For the genome sequence that you put together here, you actually looked at cancer in two very separate, very far apart dogs. Can the comparison between these two cancers help you understand the spread of it and perhaps the way dogs have spread across the whole planet? Yes, well, it's fascinating to think that this cancer has actually found its way all around the world to some of the most isolated places in the world, in fact, to islands in the Pacific and all six inhabited continents. In this study, we sequenced in detail the genomes of two transmissible tumors, one from a dog from Brazil and one from a dog from northern Australia. We chose these locations because they were quite far apart from each other and quite culturally isolated, but we were quite surprised to find 
that these two tumors, although they were on the other sides of the world, actually shared about 95% of their mutations, hmm. suggesting that these two tumors actually only diverged relatively recently in this cancer's lineage. And actually, this is consistent with some previous results. Together, this suggests that this dog cancer actually first arose in one isolated part of the world 11,000 years ago, stayed in that one place until about 500 years ago when it spread around the world at least twice very rapidly. It's interesting that this coincides with the age of exploration when people might have been moving around more rapidly around the world and perhaps taking their dogs with them. The dogs picked up this disease and spread it around the world very quickly. Do these findings about the way this cancer spread and came about do they tell us much about cancer in humans or other animals? Yes, actually, this dog cancer is the oldest continuously surviving cancer that we know of in nature. So it actually allows us to learn about the evolution of cancer and to look at the evolution of cancer in ways that aren't really possible when looking at other cancers because other cancers tend to be so short-lived. Mm -hmm. This cancer has told us, for instance, that evolution in this dog cancer seems to be occurring at a slower rate to most human cancers, suggesting that perhaps when cancers survive long-term, evolutionary pressures affecting them might change slightly. But in addition, it's important to remember that this is an important veterinary disease found in thousands of dogs all around the world. And also, it's not the only transmissible cancer. There's another transmissible cancer affecting Tasmanian devils, a unique and endangered marsupial species. And their transmissible facial cancer is actually extremely aggressive and is threatening this species with extinction. So understanding this dog cancer and transmissible cancers more generally is important for a number of reasons. I want to end with your current location. Are you still in Tasmania? Yes, that's right. I'm currently in Tasmania. Actually, this is where I come from in the first place, where my family lives. My interest in transmissible cancers first arose when I learned about the Tasmanian devils and wanted to get involved in genetics to try to help the devils. But through working on the devils, I learned about this dog cancer, and I found it absolutely fascinating to sequence the genome of this cancer and to learn more about its origins and evolution. All right. Well, Elizabeth Murchison, thank you so much for talking with me. It was a pleasure. Elizabeth Murchison and colleagues write about time-traveling cancer genomes in this week's issue. The Curiosity mission has captured a lot of headlines lately, but old, reliable opportunity is still plugging away on Mars' southern hemisphere. I spoke with Raymond Arvidsson about the latest findings this way-past-warranty rover has been digging up. The Opportunity is one of our two active rovers on the surface of Mars, and it's actually been on the surface 10 years. And it's old, it's out of warranty, but it's still discovering new things. And the paper that will appear in Science on January 24th deals with observations that we've made both from orbit using an instrument called CRISM and then calibrated using data from Opportunity in a very old part of the Martian crust on the rim of an ancient crater called Endeavor. And we found evidence for clay minerals that formed probably by groundwater long, long time ago, kind of percolating through the crust and corroding that crust to make various kinds of clay minerals, including what's called a ferrox mectite and an aluminous mectite. 
And those are produced by pretty neutral pH waters and not particularly oxidizing. So those kinds of conditions back a long time ago on Mars would have been conducive to habitability and life. We don't know if there was life there. All we know is the chemistry was the right type. Great. Okay. Well, this year marks a special anniversary for the Opportunity rover, 10 years on Mars. Can you tell us about the history of this mission? Oh, gosh. We had two rovers that launched in 2003 as part of the Mars Exploration Rover Mission, Spirit and Opportunity. Spirit landed in Gusev Crater in 2004, Mm -hmm. and Opportunity touched down in Meridiani shortly thereafter in January 2004. Spirit operated till 2010. Mm-hmm. Opportunity, incredibly, is still operating. And both rovers during their operational period, for the most part, were way out of warranty. You know, they were designed to last three to six months. Wow. Opportunity was designed to maybe travel 1,000 meters, and the odometry is approaching 40,000 meters. It's incredible. And for Opportunity, we landed on what we found based on looking at the ancient rocks that we traversed over the nine years of the mission. Basically, we landed on ancient lake beds Mm -hmm. that were reworked into sand dunes and cemented by rising groundwater. And then back about a year and a half ago, we crossed over into older rocks, an ancient crater called Endeavor, largely buried by the lake beds, but we found a rim segment we could climb onto. And what we found in Endeavor is lots of evidence for groundwater percolating through the system and corroding the rocks, but groundwater that was pretty clement in terms of the pH and in terms of the oxidation state, very early in geologic time, probably 4 billion years or so ago. Wow. But the more we look, the wetter Mars was early in geologic time. Right. And so how does the opportunity compare with the curiosity in terms of, you know, how far apart are they in terms of location and then the kinds of measurements that they can take? Well, it's interesting. I'm participating both in Curiosity and Opportunity. They're pretty far apart. They're in different parts of the planet. Opportunity is exploring older rocks, what are called Nowakian rocks, some of the earliest rocks preserved on Mars. Curiosity has been traversing the plains of Gale Crater, looking at what we think are coalescing alluvial sands. Those are materials that are brought by ancient rivers out of the rim and cliffs and the walls of Gale Crater and deposited on the floor. And one of the areas that we investigated was called the Sheepstone Unit. And it's basically a mudstone that formed in an ancient lake. And we found, again, evidence for these clay minerals, smectites, but in a different geological environment, younger environment and a sedimentary environment. And whereas Opportunity has been doing its work on this ancient rim crater on Endeavor Crater, and what we found is evidence for a lot of groundwater Mm -hmm. that was corroding the rocks through fractures. So they're complementary. Curiosity has much more capability for detailed measurements of mineralogy and isotopes and other measurements that tell you much more about the habitability and the ancient conditions. But doggone it, you know, this dirty old rover, Opportunity, way out of warranty, is keeping up with Curiosity. Can you talk a little bit about your data collection there on the Endeavor Crater? You had to do some workarounds to get the resolution that you needed to find the area to go to, right? That's correct. We're also on the science team for CRISM, which is a hyperspectral imager on the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter. And I think one of the payoffs here is coordinated use of orbital assets and measurements and then going to those places and really getting a value out of understanding of what we're seeing from the rovers. We're doing that with opportunity. We will do it with curiosity as we get closer to Mount Sharp. And with CRISM, 
what one does is command the system to move along the surface in terms of where the pixels or the ground elements are located, but the optics are on a gimbal. That means you can rotate the optics as you move along track, and we developed with the folks at the Applied Physics Lab at Johns Hopkins University the ability to move the optics so that you very finely oversample in the long track direction. That's a form of super resolution. Mm -hmm. We were able to process the data from the normal 18 meters per pixel projected on the surface down to four or five. And that finer scale resolution allowed us to identify pretty small outcrops that contained these ferric smectite, these clay minerals that are diagnostic of corrosion in a water environment. And we drove opportunity directly to the outcrop and Lo and behold, it was just an amazing discovery because it all adds together to say that you know, a long time ago, there was a fair amount of water moving through the crust of Mars as groundwater. Hmm. What kind of measurements did the opportunity take once it got to these outcroppings? <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> so remember, this is a very old rover, and not everything works. We have an arm called an instrument deployment device. It does close-up imaging. It does composition, elemental abundances and it can clean off surfaces with the rock abrasion tool, and it can grind into surfaces to remove the dust and any coatings. So what we were able to do is a lot of color imaging and spectral imaging from the mast with PanCam, and a lot of grinding and brushing and measurements with the microscopic imager and the compositional analyzer. And what we did was to put all that information together with what we saw from Orbit to identify two types of clay minerals, these dark veneers on these layered bedrock outcrops that are largely iron plus three or ferrox mectites. And then we also ground into a fracture zone. And the more we ground into the fracture and remove the coatings and the dust, the more we found extensive, extensive leaching to produce an aluminous mectite clay mineral. And we also were able to derive the kind of structure and stratigraphy from all the surface imaging from Opportunity. And the rocks we were looking at that have these clay minerals are older than the Endeavor impact event because there are impact breccias sitting on top of those rocks. And there's an unconformity that we were able to map out. So we had a section, a very ancient crust of Mars that was uplifted by the impact event. Breccia or ejecta was deposited onto it. And then with erosion over time, all that was exposed for our viewing pleasure. (laughs) Okay. I've talked to quite a few people working on the various Mars missions now, and I cannot believe how much geoscience is involved. You know, you, you think about these missions as being outer space missions, but in reality, it's all about the soil and the structure of the land, and it's kind of surprising to me. Well, Mars missions are interesting. They're exploration and discovery. Mm-hmm. Their engineering, their computer sciences, their analytical chemistry and mineralogy, but fundamentally it's field geology. You're just doing it robotically. And many of us are really excited because we've done field geology. Mm-hmm. We're just doing it through the eyes of the rover. And we try to put all the experiences that we've had doing field geology into helping understand what to tell the rovers to do and to help interpret the data. And it's really the combination of computer sciences, engineering, and field geology with the analytical capabilities, that that all adds together in an integrated team to get the, the results that we have. And the crazy thing is opportunity is discovering amazing things, still exploration and discovery, and it's still exciting after 10 years. Okay. Well, Raymond Artvidson, thank you so much. Thank you. Raymond Artvidson and colleagues write about opportunity at Endeavor Crater as part of a special section on habitability on Mars. You can read their article and more from the Curiosity team 
at www.sciencemag.org extra slash curiosity. Finally today, David Grimm, editor for our daily news site, is here to talk about some recent stories. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up, we have a story on the use of lasers in the art world. Every once in a while, I'll see headlines about the latest secret painting, long hidden and now discovered under another painting using X-ray analysis. But what if we started using lasers on these paintings? What might that show us, Dave? Well, it would show us that paintings are actually pretty complicated three-dimensional structures. We think of paintings as being fairly two-dimensional, but there's a lot going on under the surface, as it were. There are a lot of layers of paint. There are brush strokes, which really come to life if you really look at them very closely and three-dimensionally. There's a very complex structure to most of the paintings that we look at. And so how did this come about? How did someone decide that it's time to use the laser technique? <laughs> well, art historians, first of all, are interested in how paintings were made. What were the kind of brush strokes? What were the types of pigments used. And even more interestingly, they want to catch forgers. And often that's really hard to do with the naked eye. But for example, if you could see that the master painter was painting a certain way or using certain types of pigments or combinations of pigments, and a forger wasn't, then you might be able to easily distinguish the two. So this actually originated with a technique for analyzing tissues? Right. This is a sort of a carryover from biomedical imaging. It's a technique called pump probe microscopy. And this is essentially aiming tiny pulses of laser light at an object. And for humans, they use this to image the melanin in our skin. So when they're looking, for example, for skin cancer, this is a technique they can use to look at the pigments in our skin. And one of the scientists that developed this technique wondered, well, hey, there's pigments in paint too, in paintings. So could we use this approach to study artwork as well. And so they actually started with a mock painting, and then they actually did apply this technique to a precious work of art. What were they able to discern from looking at that? Well, they looked at a work, a Renaissance painting, in fact, called The Crucifixion, which was painted by Puccio Capanna in around 1330. And one of the interesting things they saw was that Capanna used very different pigments to create each of the angels in the painting. And some of these pigments were very expensive actually, sometimes more expensive than gold was at the time. So it was really giving the the historians some insight into really what went into this painting. And the other thing that was interesting was it looks like Capano was able to achieve very similar looking colors using very different kinds of pigments, different kinds of chemicals. So again, giving some unique insight into how this work was made. So is this something that art museums are going to start using right away? Well, it's an expensive technique. And right now the paintings actually have to be taken to the lab, which isn't very feasible if you're going to analyze a large number of paintings. But as technology advances and the machines that enable this technique get smaller, then it might be something that you might see in potentially a lot of major art museums. Next up, we have a story with some conflicting advice for flu sufferers. <laughs> I wondered about this before. If fever helps the body to fight off disease, what does suppressing the fever do? Is it taming an out-of-control mechanism that is harming us, or does it prolong or strengthen the infection? So, Dave, which is it? <laughs> well, this has been a debate that's been raging for decades. As humans, we've been treating fever actually for thousands of years. It dates back to Hippocrates, who recommended extracts of the willow tree bark. For a long time, we've been looking for drugs that make us feel better when we have a cold or a flu, and often when we 
trying to make ourselves feel better, we're trying to reduce fever. But as you mentioned, Sarah, there's been conflicting thoughts about whether that's actually a good thing. Scientists have thought that the fever may actually help kill the flu virus or maybe even prevent it from multiplying. And so that curbing the fever could actually hurt you in the long run. But studies have been kind of conflicting. There was a 1975 paper that showed that people who had a common cold virus shed more virus particles if they reduced their fever. Also studying ferrets that showed that when you shaved ferrets <laughs> that had the flu to make them colder and thus reduce their fever, they actually developed more virus particles in their noses, suggesting that fever may actually help reduce the amount of virus in our body. So this is old evidence. This new study takes things in a different direction. The researchers actually decided to model the effect of fever suppression, right? And they assume for this modeling that suppressing the fever increases infectivity. And they want to see, well, what impact does this have on a population level? And actually, they found it could have a pretty substantial impact. They conclude that our current use of ibuprofen and acetaminophen can actually lead to a 1% increase in flu cases. And that would translate into 700 extra flu-related deaths a year in the U.S., and according to some of their modeling, it could actually lead to as much as 2,000 more deaths in the U.S. every year, depending on how easily the virus is transmitted from person to person. So they kind of expected an increase in cases in that they, they went in saying, okay, well, if cases increase because of the fever suppression, we know they're just looking for a number. Do other researchers in the field buy these conclusions? Well, you have to remember that this modeling is based on some of these older studies, first the 1975 study, but also the ferret study, which some will argue, although ferrets are actually a very good model for seeing how flu affects humans, they're still ferrets. And so some experts are saying that this is extrapolating too much from very limited information we have on exactly what impact taking these drugs has on flu suppression. So is this really about being selfish? Take the drugs if you want to feel better, but you'll probably go out and infect more people with your germs? <laughs> well, I guess to be safe, and if this study actually holds true, probably the best course of action would be take the drugs to make yourself feel better, but stay at home. Finally, we have a story on just when exactly the sun will kill us all. <laughs> As we all know, the sun is always trying to kill us in various ways. UV light gives us cancer. The sun is the true force behind global warming. And the sun is getting gradually bigger and hotter, meaning that at some point in the future, it will cook and swallow the earth and all of its inhabitants. So, Dave, there's new evidence that this might be a bit further in the future. That's right, Sarah. Take a deep breath. Earth is actually going to be vaporized a few hundred million years later than we thought. Well, it's not actually Earth itself. It's the water on our planet. And as you mentioned, the sun is getting hotter. And the concern in what recent models have shown is that the sun is going to get so hot that it's going to burn off all the water on the planet in as little as 600 to 700 million years. And the reason this happens is, you know, when we think about global warming, we think about all the greenhouse gases we're pumping into the atmosphere, which does warm the world. But it's really nothing compared to something called the water-driven greenhouse effect, which essentially means that as Earth warms and more water gets into the atmosphere, that water actually traps more heat. And it's sort of this vicious cycle where it starts to trap more and more heat, causing more and more evaporation, more and more heat gets trapped, that you basically have Earth heating up dramatically, at least over the course of hundreds of millions of years. Okay. 
We've got some models here that look at this and try to determine when exactly this will happen. Let's start with the one with the shortest timeline. What's the closest we're able to meet our steamy destiny? <laughs> well, according to one model, it could be as little as 600 to 700 million years. But there's a problem with this model in that it's only looking at one dimension of this water-driven greenhouse, and that's altitude, what is happening at various heights above the Earth. What it really doesn't take into account is the impact of clouds. Clouds can actually help radiate heat into space, which actually helps cool the planet. Also places like deserts, which can also help radiate heat. And also the fact that humidity varies from place to place on the planet. In a couple of new studies, when researchers took these factors into account, what they found was that Earth is not going to evaporate or the water on Earth is not going to evaporate as soon as we thought. It could take as long as one to one and a half billion years, not 600 to 700 million years. Okay, so we now have a range of our existence <laughs> lasting. Um, so what about using this model now to look at other planets? Will it help us learn anything about exoplanets? It will because obviously when scientists are looking for these alien worlds out there, what they're really trying to find is a planet that can support life, something that's not too dissimilar from Earth. And to do that, we have to have a sense of how habitable these planets are, and that has a lot to do with how hot they are, how close they are to the sun, how bright and hot that sun is. And now that we know about these extra factors that play into the livability and the habitability of a planet, we can sort of expand our boundaries for what types of worlds can actually sustain life. So we'll actually have some place to go when the Earth vaporizes. Exactly. Okay, so what else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, Sarah, for Science Now, we've got a story about how Facebook is like a virus and how it may actually burn itself out sooner than we think. Also a story about creating a quantum Cheshire cat. For Science Insider, we've got a story about dramatic changes to science funding in Russia. Also a story about a system to save whales that may rely on a sort of cap-and-trade approach. And finally, for Science Live, this week's Science Live is about selling fossils. Is that good or bad for science? And next week's Science Live is about sharing data from scientific studies. Should the public be able to access the raw data from clinical trials and other studies, especially if they participated? So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news, our upcoming live chats, and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. And that concludes the January 24th, 2014 edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, please write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.